Merry Christmas, church. Please open your Bibles to Luke chapter 2. The Gospel of Luke chapter 2. And I'm curious, oh, for those of you who are visiting with us, uh, that's not the sound equipment and you shouldn't be wondering, are they ever going to fix that? Uh, That's the wind blowing through our windows upstairs, the Holy Spirit blowing through our windows upstairs and hopefully downstairs. I'm curious, have you given thought to the fact that uh, in the midst of winter, Christmas comes? That against the backdrop of darkness, the angels appear to the shepherds proclaiming these words, joy to the world. If you haven't, I hope you will for a moment. Because if your life is stuck in what seems like an endless winter, Advent is a time of the year when millions of Jesus followers celebrate this truth, that in the midst of great darkness, Jesus came. In the midst of great darkness, he still comes. And in the midst of great darkness, he will come again. All Christians say amen. Amen. We believe that. And I hope that the truth of that brings you needed joy this Christmas season to what may seem like a joyless holiday. And I realize for some of you that's true. I hope for some of you Jesus comes, hear me clearly, personally to your world just as he came to this world over two millennia ago. For some of us, Advent or any focusing on Jesus during the Christmas season is a little odd. Because some of us are taught in our churches that because of certain pagan connections to the birth of Christ, or at least a celebrating of it in December 25th or on December 25th, that to focus on Jesus and his birth was to literally be disrespectful to Scripture, and therefore disrespectful to God. Some of us were taught that. Here's what the Holy Spirit says through Scripture about that. One person thinks that certain days should be set aside as holy. And another thinks that each day is pretty much like any other. There are good reasons either way. So, each person is free to follow the convictions of conscience. What's important is in all this, if you keep a day holy, is that you keep it for God's glory. None of us are permitted to insist on our own way in these matters. It's God who we answer to, all the way from life to death and everything in between. We don't answer to each other. So, Paul says, refrain from making a big deal about Jesus during this season. Make sure that you do it for God's glory. And if you do make a big deal about Jesus during this season, then make sure that you do it for God's glory. Now we're all going to have to answer to God as we stand in the judgment for how we spent these days. That's for sure. And he's hoping however you spend it, you do it for the glory of God. So... I don't know which side of the aisle that you line up on as far as, well, do we give attention to Christ during this season or do we not? But I do know this, that God's looking for your hearts to be filled with pointing people to him however you do that. Now, 
for most of my life as I share the very first lesson in this series. Most of the airtime in the churches that I grew up in and also the churches that I preached in and also in the home that I helped develop and mature and grow, most of the time when it came to Christmas, Jesus did not get as much airtime as Santa did. He just didn't. One is a mythical story, and the other is a true story. I hope we clearly pass on to our children and to our grandchildren clearly the true story. Because they call this year Christmas, not Santamus. And I, for myself personally, in this time of my life, am making a, a, a very specific effort for those I have influence on in my own personal family and also with those I have influence on in this church family to say, I want so much for Jesus to be the reason for this season. I really do. And so this is a work in progress for me. Uh, and I mean this sincerely. There's the sportsman's first attempt at Advent candles in our home. And, and again, we're not anti-Santa. We're not, because it's a great fairy tale. we got Santas all over our house. Gail loves to collect old, ancient Santas. But there's our attempt this year to also say, there's a light that's greater than anything Santa could ever offer during the season, and it's Jesus Christ. Now, that's, that's being test-driven in our home. But because our elders have welcomed me to do that this year, it's also being test-driven in our church. And so some of you up front have seen for the very first time four Advent candles. And, and again, that's not something that we're establishing as necessarily a new tradition. It's just something that we're trying to offer to say, this is a tradition that you might be able to include in your family. Both of my girls in their homes have adopted this as a way in which they want to bring further light to Jesus Christ in this season. And so I'm just sharing that with you. And I want to thank our elders for allowing me to share these messages of Advent because it's with their trust that I would do so in a way that would not push this on anybody, but just be an alternative for all of us to be able to celebrate Christ. In the very first weekend in this series that I'm calling Worth It, we lit the candle of hope and celebrated the coming of Jesus Christ and the life that he brings that's worth the wait. In week two, we lit the candle of peace. And we lit it reminding ourselves of the life that's worth the effort that comes in Jesus Christ. And this week we're reminded as we light the candle of joy that life is worth the pain. Interestingly enough, a few moments ago, Noah read some words that Jesus gave us that make a parallel between the pain of the disciples that they were about to experience because of the cross... And the lasting joy they were about to experience a few days later when Jesus would be resurrected. Now, he likened those events to a woman's labor at the end of her pregnancy. A time when she's in anguish, which may for a woman seem like a lifetime. Until, however, the baby is born and then all of a sudden that joy replaces the anguish that she was experiencing in labor. And Jesus says that joy cannot be taken away. Now, whether you have ever been pregnant or not, I promise you, you have lived long enough, most likely, on this orb to see the unique attachment that pain has to joy and joy has to pain. As a matter of fact, I want to call them the Siamese twins of life, especially life in the kingdom of Jesus Christ. And I know a couple of shepherds that would agree with that. 
because they found this to be true for their lives, having the privilege to be the very first to lay their eyes on the baby known as Jesus after mom and dad did. Last week we heard the angel try to calm these shepherds when he appeared to them warning, <laughs> you don't have to be afraid. You don't have to be afraid. For behold, I bring you good news of great joy, which will be for all the people. For today in the city of David, there has been born for you a Savior who is Christ the Lord. This will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in claws, and he will be lying in a manger. And when the angel had finished those words, the scripture says, suddenly, there appeared with that angel a multitude of heavenly hosts praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest, and on earth, peace among those with whom he's pleased. And when the angels had gone away from them into heaven, the shepherds began to say to one another, let us go straight to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And so they came in a hurry. And they found their way to Mary and Joseph and the baby as he lay in a manger. And when they had seen this child, they made known the statement which had been told them about this child. And all who heard it wondered at the things at which they were told by these shepherds. Let's pray, church. Father, we give glory and honor to the words that we've just read because they're your words. It's your story that we've come this morning to celebrate and to honor. And as we've tried our best to offer those celebratory songs and, and just confessional songs to you this morning, we also come this morning asking you to come and be a part of this breaking of your word. Father, we also realize that we're not the only disciples here in Kerrville who are trying to do that. We ask you specifically this morning to be with the Assembly of God. And help them as they break bread and preach and teach your word and sing praises to your name. You are so worthy. Please continue to knit all of our faith families together as we try once and for all to be one in Jesus Christ. And we know that we've not done that well over the years, but we're asking your help as we make steps to do that for us and for our kids and grandkids. And we ask us in Jesus' name and everyone said. As extraordinary as the words are that I read, <laughs> can I remind you that on the night that uh, the angels came, that night was absolutely ordinary. Absolutely ordinary. The sky was ordinary. The stars were in their ordinary place. The clouds floated by at an ordinary pace. There was absolutely nothing unusual about this evening at all. No reason to expect a surprise. The sheep were ordinary. <laughs> some were fat, some were scrawny, all of them had those twig legs, and not one of them had a fleece of gold. There was no blue ribbon winners in the flock. They were simply ordinary, woolly silhouettes on an ordinary hillside. And the shepherds? Ordinary, blue-collar peasants. Their names had no celebrity clout. Their staffs weren't destined for any museum. Their writings aren't found in anybody's library. Nobody sought their opinion on social issues, and nobody sought their interpretation of Torah. They were simple, ordinary shepherds. I'm telling you, it was an ordinary night with ordinary sheep, with ordinary shepherds, and if it were not for God, who loves to hang the extra on the word ordinary, this night would have gone unnoticed. 
The sheep would have been forgotten. The shepherds would have slept the night away. But God. But God has a reputation for showing up in the midst of the ordinary, doesn't he? At that night, he pulls out all the stops. And I wish, I wish some way, somehow, the story and the words didn't have such familiarity to us because I would have loved to see the, to been there and see this black sky all of a sudden just erupt in light. Just erupt in light. And, and trees that were in the dark now had total clarity. I mean, the sky is exploding. And one minute the shepherds are dozing and the next minute they're rubbing their eyes and then they're staring at the face of an alien. And, and we run by those words terrified. You'd have been terrified too. You would have been terrified too. And in a moment, that night lost every ounce of ordinary to it. Question, why in the world did the angels come at night? Answer, I think it's because that's when the light is best seen. I think that's when it's most needed. I know it is in my life. When life gets dark and life gets painful, that's when you need most some heavenly intervention. And so... The angels came. And I can assure you, with multiple shepherds present, one of them themselves or maybe one of their family members was experiencing some financial pain. Promise you. Either one of them themselves or a family member was experiencing pain in their marriage or pain in their body or pain of, of losing someone close to them. Circle any four of us in this room and you most likely will find one of those pains in, their, in your midst. And if not you, someone close to you is experiencing This was true of the shepherds. And you know it had to be a pain to leave their sheep and to travel at night anywhere in those dangerous days of Jesus' birth. But travel these men did. And when they finally find Mary and Joseph, however long that took, don't you know they were filled with absolute joy and wonder when just like the angels had said, they found this baby wrapped in swaddling clothes in these rags in a manger, just like they had said. And they shared the joy of what the angels had said with these newbie parents, and then they shared that joy with anybody who would listen because regardless of the pain it took to get there, it was worth it completely. Life can be such a pain, can it? Mine is. <laughs> Life can be such a pain. Jesus said it would be, didn't he? In John 16 and verse 33. He says, trusting me, you will be unshakable and assured, deeply at peace. But in this godless world, you will continue to experience difficulty after difficulty. But take heart, I've conquered the world. You know that scripture maybe as well as you know any other scripture. In this world, you're going to have many struggles. In this world, you're going to have many trials, some of your version read. Difficulty after difficulty. Life's a pain, Jesus said. But pain doesn't get the final word. Despite what any religious teacher may say, life in Christ is going to have difficulties and disillusionments. But Jesus wants us to know, listen to me clearly, they don't have to steal your peace, and they don't have to steal your joy, and they don't have to steal your hope. If anything, these things represent that. It looks like one of our kids blew out one of our hope candles there. Maybe that's representative of some of you here this morning. Somebody blew the hope out. 
It should be there. I mean, you're a Christian. The light of Christ should be in you, but someone's blowing your hope out. You know what? Circumstances don't have to do that. We think they do, but they don't. Here's why I know that, because Jesus says this, Rejoice in the Lord, what? Always. <laughs> rejoice in the Lord, always again I say rejoice. That's almost commandment language. It comes as close to it as any written in the New Testament. Rejoice, I'm telling you Christians, always. Rejoice always. Now, that sounds almost as absurd as angels holding a concert in a field with some shepherds. But this season, I promise you, begs us to believe in the absurd. Peter believed it for his sheep. He writes these words. Though you have not seen him, Jesus, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him. And you're filled with inexpressible and glorious joy. For you are receiving the end result of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Now those can just be church words. But you've got to know who he's writing them to. To refugees. Peter's addressing refugees when he talks here about unspeakable joy. He's addressing these to God's chosen people who for the moment are refugees as much as any we know right now in our lifetime. If you turn on the news, you can't, you can't avoid pictures like this. Because right now in our own lifetime, we're getting a chance to see what was true in Peter and James and John's lifetime. Peter was speaking to persecuted Christians. People who had been driven from their cities, separated from their families. Their rights had been taken away. Their property had been taken away. Their positions, possessions had been taken away. In places like Pontus and Galatia and Cappadocia and Asia and Bithynia, they had fleed. For their lives they had fleed. And Peter is trying to remind them, you may have lost everything, but you don't have to lose your joy. That's hard to hear when you don't have a bed. That's hard to hear when you don't have a home anymore. And you will know you'll never go back to it, most likely. But that's exactly the words that Peter writes to some people in 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 8. He says, you've never seen Jesus, and you're not going to see him now, but you still love him and have faith in him, and you are filled with an inexpressible joy. Where did that source come from? Ricky was trying to say it a few moments ago as he had you bow your heads and think about something in your life that, that you would have joy over if it got right, if it was corrected. That, that if that thing got fixed, if that thing came true, joy would be yours. And Peter would say, no. For those of us in Christ, joy goes deeper than that. Joy is better than that because our joy is in Jesus Christ. It's not in any kind of circumstance or situation or even any other kind of person. i got to ask you, what's been taken from you? What's been taken from you? Has it been your house? Has it been your health? Has it been some kind of a, a dream that's been buried? Have you buried a marriage? Have you buried a daughter? Can I ask you this question? As you look at those burial plots in your life, is your joy buried there too? 
If so, you may have substituted courageous joy for contingent joy. Contingent joy is always dependent upon some circumstance coming true for you. Contingent joy says, I'll be happy when, or I'll be happy if, and you know that, you've done it, I've done it too. I'll be happy when I have the new house. I'll be happy when I have the new spouse. I'll be happy when I'm healed. I'll be happy when I'm home. That's contingent joy. And contingent joy depends upon the right circumstance coming true for us in order for us to to have the world be exactly as it needs to be for the moment. And since we cannot control every circumstance, it presents us a problem because when those circumstances get out of control, that can be the determining factor of whether I have joy in my life or not. And Jesus says, doesn't have to be that way. Doesn't have to be that way. Now, you know people who are buying into the lie of contingent joy. As a young people, we see it all the time. If I get a car, I'm going to be happy. They get the car, but the car wears out, and so they look somewhere else for joy. Well, and then if I get married, I'll be happy. So they get married, and disappointment moves in with their spouse because no spouse can ever deliver continual joy. And this goes on through a series of attempts. If I get the job, or if I, get, if I can just retire, or if I can just have the baby, in each of those cases, joy comes for a moment, but it diminishes. We've all seen this. We've all experienced this. And I pity the person who reaches old age and he's ridden the roller coaster of hope and disappointment and hope and disappointment and becomes cynical and fearful all along the way because that's contingent joy and it produces sour people. Courageous joy, however, turns us into strong people. Strong people. Courageous joy sets the hope of earth in Jesus Christ and Jesus alone. I love how Rick Warren defines joy. Joy is the settled assurance God's in control of all the details of my life, the quiet confidence that ultimately everything is going to be all right, and the determined choice to praise God in every situation. Wow, that was easy to sing a while ago. Blessed be your name when I'm found in the desert place, when I walk through the wilderness blessed be your name that's easy to sing but it's so hard to live but Jesus says I'm telling you there's life here you're not going to find anything in that definition from Rick Warren about happy feelings because we all know happiness is fleeting and temporary but joy true joy is centered In our faith in Jesus Christ and nothing else. Nothing else. And since nobody can take away your Christ, listen to me, sister, nobody can take away your joy. Now I'm going to ask a series of yes and no questions. And I would like for you to verbally respond. And I'm going to give you a hint. The answer to all of them is no. You ready? If Jesus Christ is in your heart, can death take your joy? No. Because Jesus Christ is greater than death. If Jesus Christ is in your heart, can failure take your joy? No, because Jesus Christ is greater than your sin. If Jesus Christ is in your life, can betrayal take your joy? No, because Jesus Christ is never going to leave you. Can sickness take your joy? No, because Jesus has promised whether on this side of the grave or the other, He's going to heal you. Can disappointment take your joy? No, because through... 
His plan, not yours. He's going to work things all together for good. Death, failure, betrayal, sickness, disappointment, they cannot take our joy because they cannot take our Jesus. Amen? They can't. And Jesus promised this, no one will take away your joy. You can give that away, but no one will take it away. Now, is that to say that our life is going to be pain-free? No, we talked about that earlier. Not in this world. Every one of us is going to spend moments in the wilderness of sorrow. But listen to me again, please. Our faith has much to do with how much time we spend there. Our faith has much to do with how much time we spend in that wilderness because Jesus says this, in him your grief will turn into joy. In him your grief will turn into joy. I don't know if you remember this or not, but the Christians of the early church were known for their courageous joy. They were not known for their buildings. They didn't have them. They weren't known for their softball teams. Hadn't been invented yet. They weren't known for their programs, but they were known for joy. Listen to the Word of God. They ate together in their homes, happy to share their food with joyful hearts. And they praised God and were liked by all people. Not a bad moniker, huh? They were joyful. In fact, you might argue this. There is no other type of Christian than a joyful Christian. In the purest sense, the phrase joyful Christian, I think, is a little bit redundant. I don't think we need the adjective. We don't put the word dead in front of the word cadaver. We don't put the word wet in front of the word water. We don't put the word handsome in front of the word Jimmy. It's just understood. It doesn't say to laugh here. It's not in the notes. Now, you know I'm kidding. But ideally, joyful Christians redundant. But we struggle with it. We just do. And I think it's because we, like the world, have contingent joy. Not courageous joy. But God can change that. And that's the message that I hope that you hear this morning. Not just that we don't do it well, but God can change that. How's your joy level then? Ricky had us pause a few moments to think, I'm going to ask, how's your joy level? On a scale from 1 to 10, this being just grim and this being joyful. How are you doing? Can I say this? Gloominess is not a Christian virtue. It's not. So, believe joy is possible. That's where we can start. Based on the word of God that we've heard this morning, just believe. Begin to, Lord, help my unbelief, but help me believe joy is possible in my life. Please don't give in to despair. When Jesus said to his followers what he said to his followers, he says to you, here it is. I've told you this so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. He didn't mean that just for the twelve. He means that for you, church. I've told you all of this so that my joy may be in you and your joy may be complete. Nobody in this room is left out of this, okay? Nobody. Please be open to the possibility of joy from heaven. It may be elusive, I promise you that. But it is never gone. And sometimes it just takes a little work. The work of gratitude. We're finding that out, aren't we? Believe that joy is possible. And here's the second thing I need you to do this week is be grateful. Be grateful. 
A preaching buddy of mine told me the other day about an older golfer in his church. He said, my friend Jerry continually teaches me about the value of gratitude. He's 78 years old and regularly shoots his age on the golf course. I'd have to live way into my 80s in order for me to see that happen, all right? But Jerry's shooting it at 78. His wife's name is Ginger. And she struggles with Parkinson's disease. What should have been a wonderful season of retirement has been marred by multiple hospital stays and medication and struggle. There are many days that she cannot keep her balance, and Jerry has to be at her side almost constantly. And then my buddy says, Jerry never complains, never. He always has a smile, always has a joke, and relentlessly beats my buddy at golf. He asked him one day, what's your secret? He said, every morning, Ginger and I sit together and we sing a hymn. And I ask her what she wants to sing. She always wants to sing the same song. Count your many blessings, name them one by one. Says we don't get far in the song because we stop right there and we start naming our blessings before we go on. And he said, when we're through recognizing the truth of those many, many blessings does much more to relieve her pain and my anxiety than any of her meds ever could do. I think it's amazing the connection between being grateful and being joyful. I'm finding that out. Many of us right now are learning that because um, we're involved in a journey. If you're visiting with us, this is a church right now that's involved in a 100-day journey. We're in day 29 of it. When we're trying to sit down sometime in the day and put down 10 things, 10 gifts that God's blessed us with. We want to come to 1,000 gifts at the end of 100 days. That's our goal anyway. It's not the law. No one's going to lose their salvation because they don't do that. But we're trying to develop a discipline of thankfulness because we, we're, we're believing the word. That there's some kind of connection to me being grateful for what I have over what I don't. And that that's where joy comes from. In Christ anyways. Here's a couple of mine from this last week's list. 507, December golf days. Yeah, baby. Smokehouse breakfast at Cracker Barrel. Love the grits. 509, ZZ Claus. If you were here for the Flying J concert, you know who ZZ Claus is. Number 510, friends who loan grinders when yours breaks right in the middle of an axis, dear. Thank you very much. And thank you, Jack Schubert. 511, when ordinary Wednesdays become extraordinary. It was just an ordinary Wednesday night, this last Wednesday night. I'm sitting around a table with some ordinary people. Answering some ordinary, going deeper questions. We came to question number five. Give the details of a moment in your past that had slim to none written all over it. And yet God defied those odds. That was the question. And the people gathered around that table started answering that question. And it was, it was pretty encouraging. But then I'm telling you the atmosphere changed in the room when Patty Chandler began to tell of a Sunday morning a few weeks ago. She said, you know that we have been struggling with the loss of Peggy and Gary, but you may not know how difficult it's been for us to come to church. For those of you who are visiting with us, Peggy and Gary 
were tragically shot to death. That's their daughter and their son-in-law. She said, the reason why we're struggling with coming to church is because everywhere we go in this church, we see them. We see their impact. Kids, classrooms, meeting rooms. It's just so hard to not think of them when we're here. Patty went on to say it was during communion a couple of weeks ago, which is our special time with God that I was really struggling that day. And I said to God, we really need your help. We can barely breathe, let alone know what next step to take in our lives. And Patty said, I had barely gotten those words off my lips, in my heart. When I looked up on the stage, and there was Jesus with his arm around Patty or Peggy. She said, I don't know how to tell you this. I just, peace came over me. Just instant peace came over me. What was Jesus doing here in this Lord's Supper? I mean, I thought I remembered a scripture she said about him not taking again until he comes into his kingdom. She said, so it surprised me to see Jesus standing there during our communion with his arm around Peggy, but I was so glad he was there. And I knew we'd be okay. For a moment, none of us could say anything. Now, you know people in your life that if they shared something like that, automatically dismissed because they see and hear all kinds of things. It's not Larry and Patty Chandler. It's not. They're some of the most humble, quiet, reserved servants of Christ that I know. And if Patty says she saw a vision, which it had to be because we were all in this room together with her and we didn't see that. But if she saw a vision of Jesus on this stage with his arm around her daughter, I believe her. And as unlikely as that may be for her to have seen it, if you know them at all, it's equally as unlikely that she would share it. Yeah, some of you know her well. And I asked her yesterday afternoon when I went over to say, I need, to, I need you to tell me the story again so I make sure that I get this straight. Because I don't want to tell it wrong in any form or fashion. I said, why are you sharing this story now? And she said, if I don't share it, how will people know what Jesus did for my heart, my faith, and my family? How will they know? Well, I know of some shepherds who could have kept what they saw to themselves. Same ordinary, low-key people who saw something extraordinary from God. And it let them know in the moment he was with them. And they risked the pain of folks thinking that they had lost their marbles to share the good news of great joy that had come into their lives. And you know what, church? I hope you do the same. Because I'm finding out in this little thankfulness journey of ours how gratefulness is often attached to the courageousness Jesus calls us to. This courageous joy that he calls us to live. That he enables us to live from the inside out. 
Who's to say that God won't give you something similar if you ask Him to? So I'm inviting this morning to ask. Ask. Lord, what is separating me from joy? If you've walked in here joyless this morning, what's separating me from joy? Ask Him to replace your contingent joy with courageous joy. Ask Him to help you believe that He could. Ask Him to help you see how He has already acted in your life so you can see it to know how He's going to act in your future. I know it's a pain to ask. But what you're going to find out is it's so worth it. Father in heaven, we come to you asking you please this morning. We sung a song a few moments ago that said, you're here in this place, but you know us. (laughs) We don't mean half of what we sing. But I pray right now through the power of your Holy Spirit, we will believe you are here in this place. And if you want to make yourself visible, you'll do that. If you want to make yourself available, you'll do that. If you want to make yourself impressionable, you'll do that. If you want to make yourself humble, you'll do You're here. And I'm asking among us, would you move? And especially if there's someone here this morning who is just hopeless, who's just joyless, and they need so much for you to visit them, would you please come? Would you please, however they need for you to appear in their life, to be in their life, would you please draw them into life that has no end? Father, I just thank you this morning for, um, for Reese, who's going to come and give his life to Christ. We're thrilled that he would do that. And we pray over this young man right now as he steps out to put on Jesus Christ as his Lord and Savior, that, Father, that you would please fill him with joy, fill him with peace, fill him with gentleness and kindness and faithfulness and self-control. We know you will. And we thank you, Father, for the lives that Roger and Dana have lived that will that have caused him to want to follow in their footsteps and be Jesus' followers. And, Father, if there's anybody here this morning that would like to join them and be a part of that, please just nudge them that they could come die to themselves and live for Christ, to leave their sins right here, right here in the waters of baptism so that you might raise them to walk in newness of life. Thank you for the hope that you offer us through this. And, Father, we thank you for the, for the shepherds that are going to be here at the front and at the back who want so much to see their sheep filled with joy. I want to try to be a part of helping anything be removed from their life that's keeping them from your joy. And so as we conclude this time of, of your word being spoken, would you please come and be with us in a special way? Minister to us so that we can leave here ministering for you. We ask us humbly in Jesus' name and everyone said, amen. Let's stand and let's praise him, church.